Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have back one of my marketing heroes, Mark Schaefer. Mark, welcome. Marcus, I've had this on my calendar and I, it, with a big star on it. I love our conversations, and I'm so happy to be with you today. Excellent. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Cumulative Advantage. If you haven't read Mark's books, the first one I read was Marketing Rebellion, which I think is one of the seminal works on modern marketing. He's also written Known, which is about personal branding, and The Content Code, which is obviously about developing uh, powerful content. And that's certainly been a strategy that served me very well. So, Mark, could you give 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. I grew up in the corporate world. I worked in marketing for a Fortune 100 company for many years. Started my own business in 2008 as a marketing strategy consultant, which is really my sweet spot. Started the blog that led to writing books that led to public speaking. And I also am a faculty member at Rutgers University here in America teaching digital marketing. Excellent. Okay, so let's start uh, the conversation around the cumulative advantage with uh, a little bit of uh, author envy and um, your comparison with you and Tim Ferriss. So let, let's set the scene. So this was a big risk that I took, actually. And to, and to explain why I, I did this and what this is, I need to, to take a step back and, and say, what is this phrase, cumulative advantage? So this is based on sociological research that really started in the 1960s that shows if you have some small advantage over someone else and you sort of play your cards right, that that advantage will expand and expand and expand, and you'll just remove yourself from your, your competition. So that's the heart of this book. It's about building momentum against all odds. And that's an important phrase, against all odds, because look, the odds are stacked against us in so many ways today. So in my research, I was trying to find examples of people who had spectacular success against all odds. And I went down lots of rabbit holes, Marcus, and I came across Tim Ferriss. Now, if you're not familiar with Tim, he is a media sensation. He's written several New York Times bestselling books. He has one of the best podcasts on iTunes, most popular. He interviews every celebrity you can think of, star athletes, media giants, uh, he's become one of the highest paid speakers. He's a successful venture capitalist. Everything he touches turns to gold. So I was curious, what was his background? What got him there? And I read and I read and I read, and the guy was a loser. <laughs> and I'm not saying anything that he wouldn't say himself because he's very transparent, but he was, he was sort of... Um, very sickly as a child. Uh, he was bullied as a child. He came from a very modest background, although his parents bought him lots of books, obliged his, so he read a lot. He was not very successful in business. He was not successful in relationships. He was burned out, had a physical breakdown, a psychological breakdown, 
went through Europe trying to get his act together. And while he was in Europe, he had the idea for a book, how to get more out of your life and not work so hard. He pitched this book to 26 different publishers and was rejected. So who would have bet on this guy that 10 years later, he would be this media superstar with, you know, turning everything into gold that he touches. So something crazy happened to this guy. And I thought, well, look, let's see, let's explore this. And I spent way, way, way too much time learning about Tim Ferriss. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that, look, he and I had our first books come out about the same time. And if you were a betting person to say, who would know Oprah in 2000, let's call it 2010, who would know Oprah in 2020? Would it be Mark or would it be Tim? And everyone would bet on me but it was Tim. So I thought this would be an interesting sort of race through the book to see what did he do? What, What the heck happened to this guy? And what the heck happened to me? And as it turned out, I literally could not have written a better script because what he did exactly followed my research, both secondary research, original research, this study that came out in the 1960s, starting in the 1960s. And so that became sort of a great literary agent in the book to say, let's have this race between Tim and Mark. And it helps explain how people create momentum against all odds. So let's start with the first point around initial advantage, because Tim clearly didn't have that. Not Uh, much. (laughs) And I I see this peppered throughout the book. You give examples of the likes of Spanx and uh, Sprinkler, fabulous companies that have grown out of a a great concept, but they didn't really have the initial advantage. So how do you create the initial advantage? Well, I think this is one of the ideas in the book that will create a, a great sense of hope, I think, in people in that... It shows through research, primarily from Franz Johansson, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called The Clip Moment, that almost every, behind almost every great person and every great company and every great business idea is a random moment where you just connect something that you hadn't connected before. You're in the right place at the right time. Maybe it's a conversation you had with someone at a conference or sitting in an airplane. In the book, I tell this little story that I can connect my conversation with you directly to a weird thing that happened to me in the early 1990s. I was stuck in my marketing job in this Fortune 100 company. And I thought, where am I going to go next? And I'm looking around me. And the internet is starting. And my boss actually resisted it. (laughs) He wouldn't even go on to email. I saw potential. I thought there were business ideas in the internet. So I asked my boss, I would like an AOL account and I'd like to put it on my expense account. After much debate, he thought it was a great waste of money. He agreed. And I had some ideas and they worked. And a few years later, the company woke up and discovered we need to have an e-commerce department. Who's going to run this thing? Well, look at Mark. He's been on the internet longer than anybody else. I was the first person in the company 
on the internet. So, boom, I'm the director of e-business for a Fortune 100 company. We're creating these internet platforms with our affiliates all over the world. And then eventually I started my own business, a digital marketing consultant, wrote books and spoke, and I'm known for that. And here I am with you. Uh, absolutely. It, it all started with this sort of random thing. And, and the idea, one important distinction here is it wasn't just an idea. I pursued the idea, right? I chased the idea. I, I pursued it with my boss. Then I pursued these applications on the internet. And if I hadn't fought for those ideas and pursued those ideas, I'd be doing something completely different by now. One of the rules that I learned over the last 20 years is um, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. But mm-hmm. I think it's more than that. I think it's an openness, openness to yes. what the possibilities are. And it's having that infinite mindset that um, the, the pie can get bigger rather than just trying to get a larger piece of a shrinking pie. And then there is that piece around execution and implementation, because I think fundamentally a lot of people come up with great ideas, but then they fear implementing them because uh, they misconstrue risk and sacrifice. They worry what others will think of them. They worry that they will be ridiculed or look stupid for raising this idea. Or they have a script that tells them we're good enough or no one in our family ever. And I'm curious about the qualities of the people that you've studied that separate them from the rest who may well come up with the next great idea, but never implement it. It's a very, very interesting point. And of all the rabbit holes I went down through on this book, the one I didn't go down is really exploring this idea Is there certain personality characteristics other than, so part of my research is I did original uh, original research around people who had started companies basically from scratch, really didn't have a lot of what we would call initial advantage, and yet they propelled their idea into a successful business. What created the momentum? So, uh, you know, again, which was very rewarding to me the big five things that happened to them matched the five trends that were were coming out in the primary research. So it, it wasn't a surprise, but it was validating. Now, there is one other thing that they kept talking about. Resilience mm-hmm. is just the grit. You keep persistence. You just keep going on. And what they said, look, when you have a new idea, you're going to be knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, and you have to keep going on. And one of the things that you said that's so interesting to me is this idea of feeling that maybe you're not worthy or you can't do it, or you have some fear of being criticized. I don't know if you've seen this, but in the last, let's say, three to four months, I have seen more articles and more conversations about this thing, imposter syndrome, than Mm -hmm. ever in my career. I don't know if it's a coincidence that people are being forced into new situations because of the pandemic and is creating a new sense of anxiety or what this is really about. But I agree with you that you have to have a certain swagger, I think, (laughs) (laughs) 
to just keep on going with your ideas and feel that you do belong and that your idea is worthy. I've got a big chapter in the book about how to sort of test the worthiness of ideas. Maybe that'll help people. I think part of this is down to ego and attachment. In transaction analysis, there's this model called the drama triangle. And it describes every broken, messed up, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a triangle. They are the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. The victim voice is, why me? This always happens. And it comes in a whiny tone. Why me? It's not fair. This always happens to me. And their other favorite refrain is, save me. They never take personal responsibility. And victims love to club together with a pity party. You have a persecutor, and the persecutor comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capital letters as it stabs you in the face or chest. You're always, you're never, you're such a disappointment. You've ruined the whole day. You people, you're all the same. And it comes with a pile of baggage, uh, prejudice, bias, and stereotypes. And then you have the rescuer, and the rescuer is molly coddling and permissive. But the other thing the rescuer does is it tends to help without boundaries or permission. Uh, So it can be very interfering, manipulative, micromanaging. Now, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And the opposite of that is uh, being vulnerable instead of a victim, being assertive instead of being persecuting, and being nurturing and empathic instead of being a rescuer. Now, what all of these qualities require is non-attachment and authenticity. And where I hear people going into imposter syndrome, their attention has gone from serving their customer to trying to serve themselves or trying to be perceived in a particular way. So it drags them into that drama triangle. Coaching a number of very successful people over the last couple of years. And they have hit a block because they were successful. And now they're comparing themselves with their previous results instead of remembering what made them successful in the first place, which was serving their customers, helping them achieve their outcomes and helping them be successful. That's my observation of this because a number of my clients have got very successful salespeople who were successful last year but they're struggling to work out how they can continue that success. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I like that model. And as you're talking, I, I recalled um, this advice I had from one of my teachers and mentors. He said, there's no such thing as a weakness, just an overdone strength. So <laughs> it's good to be confident, but too much confidence is arrogance. Yeah. It's good to be vulnerable, but if you're too vulnerable, then people are going to just run over you, right? You're going to be a victim perhaps, right? So that's what was going through my mind. So I like that model very much. But anyway, to get back to the, to the main point is you have to apply your idea to something going on in the environment. In the book, I call this the scene. It's a fracture in the status quo. There's shifts going on. and The idea here is action. Raji Thomas, you mentioned Sprinkler. He's the founder of Sprinkler. He said in the book that, look, 
Everybody has good ideas. There are millions of good ideas, but it's really the commitment that changes things. It's the action that changes things, that it's a quest. It's the pursuit of curiosity, not just having an idea, but pursuing it and acting on it. That is really the thing that gets momentum started. You can't have momentum without pursuing your curiosity. I was particularly taken with the Ingmar Bergman quote, if I can master the negative forces and harness them to my chariot, they can work to my advantage. And again, I see that a lot in very successful people. Uh, What they see are the gaps in the market, and that's where they gain their initial foothold. And that's where presumably the initial advantage does come from. Yes, yes. And think about where we are today. It's a very sad time. It's a tragic time for many people, but it's also a period of opportunity. I predicted last March when the pandemic was setting in that we would see more startups in America than any time in our history. And that has come true. We've had lots of business failures, but we've had more startups than failures because what what, where does a, a new business idea come from? It's from serving some new unmet or underserved customer need. And we have so many new needs today. And that's what, that's what I call a fracture in the status quo. It's a shift in something, a shift in the world, a shift in attitude, a shift in trends, a shift in fashion, a shift in taste. It, it could be anything. And, and this, is, this is happening constantly. And we just have to be aware of when our ideas can meet those needs. That's the seam. That's the opportunity. That is the ignition for momentum. And I think to build on that, you have to let go of your attachment to how other people perceive you. If you have an idea, run with it. Failure is almost never fatal. And if you look at so many successful entrepreneurs, They've failed many, many times. They've been bankrupt many times. Right. And I think part of the problem is certainly culturally over in Europe, uh, we have a tendency to view uh, bankruptcy as the end of something. Whereas in the US, particularly around Silicon Valley, there is a, a tendency to view bankruptcy as essentially a great object lesson. Uh, now, if you don't learn from your acts of idiocy, then it can be problematic. But, you know, Daniel Marcos is a a fabulous example of this. He built a very successful financial services business in uh, pre-2008, providing basically junk mortgages to Latinos in the US. And he thought he was incredibly successful until uh, the financial crash happened. And within 24 hours, his his $200 million a year business disappeared overnight. He was about to pack it all in, but uh, Vern Harnish... Uh, told him, that's precisely why I want you to lead my uh, coaching business. Now, instead, he took a country manager role for Google. So obviously, they thought there was something in him as well. But what he found was it didn't give him that sense of satisfaction that the coaching did. So again, I think one of the other themes I really liked is it has to fuel your soul if you're going to be successful. Because otherwise, the constant knockbacks and disappointments and failures in role are going to eat away at you. So what would you advise people to do in terms of getting themselves psychologically ready 
in order to uh, build on their cumulative advantage. Well, one of the very interesting observations you just made was sometimes reaching new success means shedding something or leaving something behind. Yeah. And this was an eye-opening idea to me that sometimes we try to fulfill some narrative about us, some story about us. So for me, there's lots of stories and narratives about me. I was, you know, the oldest of six children, so I was always taking care of people. I was always taking care of children. And I had sort of a father figure role in my family. And then I have a certain narrative about me in a relationship. I have a certain narrative about me on social media. I have a certain narrative about me with my clients and, and you know, all of my groups. So you have to think about, are these stories really true? Is this really what I want for myself? And I was doing a coaching session with a woman. Her dream, her ultimate dream was that she wanted to write a book but she failed English in in high school. And she had a terrible teacher, she hated her teacher, and she was humiliated that she failed English. And so the story about her is, oh, well, she's a terrible writer. And so she thought she could never write a book. And we were able to unleash this opportunity in her by just changing this narrative to say, wait a minute, there are lots of ways to write a book. You can get help writing the book. There's technology to help you write a book. There are editors to help you write the book. And by the way, maybe that teacher was just a jerk. <laughs> and he, that teacher doesn't have to ruin your whole life. So it could either hold you back or propel you. Barbara Corcoran was on a Clubhouse episode recently. She's the lady who's on Shark Tank. And she talked about when she was in school, she couldn't read. She just couldn't learn to read. She was a late bloomer. And she had this nun in her school. And the nun told her that she wasn't going to amount to anything. And she said, I know that nun's probably been dead 50 years, but every day I want to show that son of a bitch nun she's wrong. (laughs) So that was a story in her life that sort of propelled her, became the furnace in her engine. So we need to sort of look at what are our narratives? Are they helping us? Are they serving us? Are they putting us in a cage that are keeping us from starting that momentum? One of the themes that I was particularly excited about in the book was reaching up. And I've always maintained when uh, young people come to me for help is go out and ask people to be your mentor. Contact them on LinkedIn and say to them, I'm after some help. You're welcome to say no. I see your history as my future, and I promise you three things. One, I will always come to a conversation with you prepared. Mm -hmm. Two, I will always implement what I agree to implement. Mm -hmm. And three, I will come back with the lessons I have learned through failure or success. Mm -hmm. And all I want is 20 minutes a month, and at any point, you can fire me. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really interesting is the people who've actually implemented that end up getting help from people who've got 30, 40 years' experience. And they get that from half a dozen to a dozen people uh, who are at the top of their game. And that accelerates their career path. And I think one of the most important things that we can do as entrepreneurs, as uh, idea creators, is to go out and find people who can help. And the most Mm -hmm. important question I've learned after 35 years in business is who, not how. When I face a problem, 
the first question I like to ask is who has already tackled this and who does it best? And then I interview them for the podcast. The last two years uh, running the podcast has been an absolute blessing because I've been able to get the accumulated wisdom of 4,000 years of scar tissue. I mean, uh, unless I had taken the decision to set it up and ask people and not worry whether people rejected me, I wouldn't have had that level of exposure. So again, what's your advice to people when they are trying to set up their business or get their idea off the ground? First of all, I love everything that you've said and your quote, you're approaching someone, your history is my future. I mean, how could you say no to that? (laughs) And I wish I had talked to you about this like six months ago. I would have used that quote in the book. (laughs) I'm sure I stole it. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. Well, you know, one of our mutual friends and uh, a a guest you've had on your podcast is Matthew Sweezy. And he is absolutely a magician when it comes to mentorship and knowing how to reach out and reach up to the right people. And what I suggest in this chapter, which features Matthew and some of his ideas, is that we need to reimagine the idea of mentorship. If someone comes to me, I mean, mentorship used to be, if you look up a a definition on the web, it says a long-term relationship sort of between a teacher and a student where you teach someone. And my view is if you need to learn something, just go to YouTube. You can learn anything on YouTube. To me, Mentorship today is more about creating momentum. It's about finding someone who's been there or who's there or who's going there and can make the connections for you, can open the doors for you, can comment on your progress and your ideas. There's there's nothing faster. There's nothing greater if you're stuck at, at some certain place in your with your ideas or your business to get the view of someone who's been there to say, let me take you by the hand and let me help you get there. There's someone you need to know. Those are magic words. And that can create momentum almost better than anything. And I also challenge people at the end of the book to think about it in the opposite way. That if we know this momentum starts with those initial sparks and the initial advantage, it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be education. It can be, like I said, just opening a new door. It can be an introduction. It can be encouragement that we, all of us, have the power to send ripples down through history by creating those sparks of initial advantage for others. It's one of the most powerful things that we can do. That's something we can all do to change the world in in a positive way, just by taking that one step and making ourselves accessible to people who need to create some momentum. That's been a fundamental observation for me in my career as well. Uh, We are a a species of social primates. Our strength and the reason why we have become the dominant uh, species on the planet is our ability to transfer knowledge and experience orally through uh, mentorship, through uh, training and so on, and through story. I think far too uh, few people are willing to ask for that help because they do suffer from the I'm not worthy script or they don't want to interrupt. And part of this is down to scripting. Don't interrupt, I'm busy. Don't talk about money, it's rude. The man with the gold makes the rules. You know, all of these are lies. 
perpetrated by well-meaning adults yeah. or people who couldn't be bothered. Um, and the, the grim reality is that people will help. And it's incredibly satisfying to help. I constantly get approached by people who are looking for mentorship. They're looking for assistance. They're looking for the kind of support that they need. Now, part of the problem is that often people don't want to pay for support. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second, uh, if someone asks you for mentorship, you should charge because sometimes giving back is the reward. However, if you lack in a particular area, ultimately, you are responsible for developing that skill or that knowledge. You can go onto YouTube to train and educate yourself. You can read. You can enroll for training programs. But ultimately, what you see in every single one of the people in your book is they took ownership. They owned the fact that they needed to get this idea, make it real, put it out in the world. And they took action. They didn't passively wait around for someone to gift it to them. Now, this again, I think is a really important takeaway from the book that you are responsible for building that cumulative advantage. The universe was here first. It does not give a damn. And it's not going to just gift it to you. You have to put in the shoe leather. You have to put in the heavy lifting intellectually. And you have to keep asking yourself the difficult questions and surround yourself with great people. One of the other themes I was really pleased about in the book is that, you know, find people who are better, who know their stuff and, go and collect them. The last couple of years or last 10 years or so, I've been collecting brilliant people into my network. And it's paid off because now I have access, not only do I have access to fabulous people, and if there is a problem that a client or somebody needs to solve, I can probably help them solve it. But when I'm trying to deal with something, I've got hundreds of go-to people uh, who are specialists in a field that saves me months and months of trying to work it out myself. That's a perfect model. That's the perfect model, I think, for modern day mentorship and networking. This network that you've built, these resources that you've built, you don't have regular meetings with them every week or every month, but you know they're there and you can call on them when you have some issue, some problem, some opportunity, and they'll be there to help you. I've been involved in some formal mentoring programs and I just think it's out of touch and out of date when you, you have to meet with these young people and you have to meet with them an hour, a month and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, having another job. <laughs> and I think there's a better way to do it and a more efficient and more productive way to do it. And I think you're really illustrating a model of that. What's been interesting is with a handful, we've identified that there is a reciprocal need. So I meet with those once sure. or twice um, a month. And so I've got someone in community who is helping me because I'm launching a community called Sales a Force for Good. And it's a reaction to how sales has been derailed over the last 50 years from being a service profession uh, to being one that is driven by quarterly revenue targets and is resulting in terrible conditions, burnout, awful experiences for customers. We've lost sight of the fact that we exist 
precisely because of, not in spite of the customer. I've got a great pal, uh, Rod Jefferson, who is the leading exponent in sales enablement. And we reciprocate. I have uh, another, uh, Gary Mitchell, who is the daddy when it comes to, to transformation, because I want to create great change. And I can't do that on my own. But he's got 35 years of experience of never having had a change program fail. Now, again, go out and find people who are at the peak of their performance. Find something that you can trade with them if there is an opportunity to do that. Looking at your Ikigai model, you find something where you have passion, mission, vocation, and profession, and you're doing what you love, what the world needs, what you're good at, and what you can be paid for. Now, Mm -hmm. to me, that is not work. That's just getting paid to play. Right. (laughs) I had a realization. It's funny. We're connecting a lot of dots here. To recover from 2020, I took a month off. I went to the to a bottle, you know, rented a little place on a beach, and I said, "I'm just going to get away from work for a month." I've never done this before in my life. While I was on this beach, I missed work. I missed work, and and I thought, "Wait a minute, I have fun when I work." <laughs> Why am I trying to get away from work? And it's because one of these things that you said about shedding, like shedding these narratives, right? And I think one of my narratives is I grew up in this sort of stoic, German, hardworking, blue collar household. And then, and work is something to be avoided, is to be respected, but you want your time off and your time off is without work. And what I realized is I've sort of reached this place of ikigai in my life where I have fun every day. I enjoy what I do every day. And so it is integrated in a very, in a very good way with me. And that was a lesson I just learned, uh, you know, a month or so ago. (laughs) (laughs) One of the stories I had to shed that I am at a good place and work isn't something to be avoided. Uh, I've, kind of achieve my goals where I love what I do. I have fun every day. It's rewarding. People tell me I change their life. Why wouldn't I pursue that? So that then raises the question of timing. Mm -hmm. Because timing seems to be a really important component in the book. And just making, you know, having the right idea Mm -hmm. executed at the right time. And to my mind, that's may well be largely a function of luck. Yes. Because by the sounds of things, almost none of the people that you write about really started out with a particular plan. It was the coalescence of a lot of um, ideas, lots of experience, all coming together, happenstance, they meet somebody, and then suddenly it just explodes. That was one of the things I struggled with in this book. (laughs) because. If you look at the literature on entrepreneurship and success, without question, timing is a big deal. Timing may be the biggest deal. There's research in the book that shows here are all these different factors, having the good idea, having the right idea and having the right people and having a monetization strategy. And all of that is good and all of that is necessary. But if your timing is off, then it doesn't work. And I have examples of that in the book as well. 
there was an entrepreneur that basically had the idea for YouTube, had the plan, had the strategy, had the people, had the funding, went for it, but the technology wasn't there yet. The bandwidth wasn't there yet. It was too complicated to watch videos on the web at that point. He closed the company. 18 months later, the technical problems were solved. Boom, there's YouTube. Now, so you're right. There is some element of luck involved. But what I do in the book is try to explain what a fracture in the status quo means, how to look for shifts that might be applicable to your ideas, and also to really give a hard, clear-eyed look at your ideas to make sure you're ready for that opportunity. <laughs> are, 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 you, are you ready to, to push for this? Are you ready to sacrifice what it, what it takes to, to get this thing going? And is it more about your customers than you? So one of the biggest problems I see with entrepreneurs is that they're so in love with an idea, they're blind to the fact that it may not mean anything to anybody but them. And I'll challenge them and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, 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 I'm in love with this idea. This, mean, this, this idea really means a lot to me. And even when the world is telling them, we're not interested. They just keep on going, wasting money, wasting money. So there are things we can do to get ready, to give ourselves the best shot to build momentum. But there is a certain amount of of luck involved. The other part of this, though, is we live in such an amazing age where so many of our ideas are dependent on creating a business, creating momentum, uh, creating awareness on the internet that it doesn't take that much time or money to test an idea like it might have been 30 years ago. So there are lots of opportunities. I think there is obviously a paradox here because on the one hand, we hear about people like Tim Ferriss who get rejected time and time again, 26 times by publishers, and eventually he breaks through. And then what you're saying in the last breath is that you need to get out at some point. And that, you know, there's an obvious observation, which is don't hang on too long and don't get out too soon. How do you judge? How do you judge when the right time to get out is or whether you should uh, keep soldiering on? Well, connecting to, a, got to the dots to another conversation you had, you uh, mentioned a few minutes ago about not creating a failure so bad that you, you can't get out. I was um, so fortunate to study under Peter Drucker for three years. And one of the things he used to tell us was failure is natural. Failure is a learning experience. But entrepreneurs aren't risk-oriented. They're opportunity-oriented. And you never want to fail so bad that you can't come back with your next idea. So I think that has to be in the balance. One of the things I talk about at the end of the book is constancy of purpose. And I think this is particularly relevant for this time. What I mean by constancy of purpose is avoiding what Jim Collins calls the doom loop. The doom loop is you've got the momentum going, you found your advantage, you've burst through a seam, you've created awareness, you've got the momentum going, and then something goes wrong, like a pandemic. 
And for those of us who have started businesses, things always go wrong. And the doom loop occurs when you start grasping at straws, when you change and change and change and change because you're afraid and you lose, you eventually lose sight of your core competency. You lose sight of the value that you're bringing to customers because you're so afraid. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have to be smart. I'm not saying that you don't have to be aware of what's going on around you and even pivot if necessary. But one of the things that I'm talking to my clients about is, look, if your business proposition is solid, here's the goal right now. Get through one year. If you can get through one year and land on the other side and outlast your competitors, you're going to be okay. Don't make drastic changes right now if you can land on the other side intact. So constancy of purpose, that commitment, that consistency, I think in many cases, consistency is more important than genius, is just keep grinding, grinding, grinding and making it work and making it happen. You know, we just can't lose sight that that the biggest problem is that people quit too soon, is they give up too soon. And I think that's one of the things that in the Tim Ferriss story that is kind of remarkable, he probably didn't know what his initial advantage was. He had this idea for a book. I'm not sure his publisher even knew, but when it came out, it was the theme for him was we were at the beginning of the hustle culture. We were beginning at the beginning where it somehow became glorified to work 18 hours a day, the Silicon Valley lifestyle, and people were getting burned out. And what he's saying in his book is work four hours a week, the four hour work week, sign me on. I'm burned out. So he had a seam and probably didn't even know it. You know, that was part of the luck, I guess. And, but then he had the wisdom to be consistent. He, he burst through that seam, promoted the book like crazy. Then he created what? The four-hour body. His next book was The Four-Hour Chef. So he, 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 he had constancy of purpose and, and created a franchise, basically, that leveraged his initial success and his initial momentum. So again, if we take Tim Ferriss as a really good example of this, Mm -hmm. what he was able to do was create a deafening wall of noise around his message and to keep amplifying it. Now, in this day and age, it's possible to do that. But part of the problem is that most people try and do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing increasingly is that the really smart marketers, the really smart marketing organizations are really very focused around getting the customer to be your strongest marketing engine. And certainly that was my takeaway from Marketing Rebellion. Right. Talk to us about that. Well, that's exactly how it works. So let me use myself as an example. So let's say that I put the promotion of my new book on on my shoulders. So I'm going to create blog posts and podcasts. I'm going to be taking out ads. And what people are going to see is, here's the author of this book 
telling us that his book is great. Well, some people might say, oh, I know Mark Schaefer. I trust him. I'll buy his book. But most people are going to say, who's this guy? Never heard of it. Why would I buy this book? Now, what I've really done is I've gone out to friends in my circle, and I would consider you one of them, to say, hey, I have a new book. What can we do to tell the world about my book? And the idea is to create what I call a sonic boom. I don't have a 12-month promotional plan. I don't have a six-month promotional plan. To really get the momentum going around awareness, you have to create a big noise all at one time. So there's, there's almost a ubiquity to your idea. I'll give you an example of how I could sort of see this work. When I launched my last book, Marketing Rebellion, woman sent out this tweet and she said, I've seen Mark Schaefer's new book mentioned four times today. I guess I should go buy it. Now, basically, I put everything I've got, all my energy into about four to six weeks to create this sort of ubiquitous style of promotion. Now, I should also say there's a very important chapter in this book that talks about how your ability to do that is wedded to the work that you've done on your own personal brand over time. Now, let's say six years ago, seven years ago, I couldn't come to Marcus Kauke and say, I'd love to be on your podcast. You'd say, who's this guy? Never heard of him. But I've worked and worked and worked and worked and worked to build up my personal brand and write these books. And I have very low standards, Mark. Well, maybe using you as a bad example. (laughs) Other than you, other than you. And so it it is wedded that the, the more time and effort you spend on your own brand as a company or your personal brand as a person, the bigger the sonic boom you can create because you'll be able to reach up to higher level people for help. So Marketing Rebellion was became a, a bestseller on Amazon in two different categories. It, it has con- continued to sell and sell and sell. My book known the same way. And you know hopefully it'll work for cumulative advantage as well. But really it's about creating this sonic boom early attention, big, loud noise, and that sort of gets the snowball rolling down the hill. So well, it's worked before, and, and that's really how it works in the world today. And I, I think in terms of building that personal brand, there are some really important uh, ground rules. The first is your content and your message needs to be consistent. It needs to deliver value every time. It needs to be contextually relevant and it needs to be timely. And if your personal brand is being built around being selfish and take, 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 you're not going to take off. My fortunes shifted about 10 or 12 years ago when I intentionally started just to produce content in order to provide value to my network. What's been really interesting about that is the work that I did back even 16 years ago is paying off today because I have clients who've come to me in my new CRO role who 
have been following my content and haven't even so much as liked, commented, or shared on it for the last 16 years. But it happened to hit them with a particular message. They've been following me for all these years, and yeah. they just reached out and said, we need your help. Um, That's exactly and, how it works. Yeah. And so it's really important that you're consistently trying to help yeah. your network. and. I think where people go horrifically wrong is where they start to follow the, the bland, vanilla, interruptive corporate marketing style, which is all about me, 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 or us, 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 we, 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 and it's pushing product. No one buys product. They rent an outcome. And why I think one of the freshest minds in this space is Bob Mester. I don't know if you've read his book, Demand Side Sales, but it is an absolute must. The way people buy is they start to make space. Then they start looking passively. Then they look actively. And then they start making trade-offs. And they move from this zone of consideration to this zone of temptation. When they make the decision, they've probably nowadays already gone through weeks or months or even years of exploring their options. And If you don't have that social proof, then to a large extent, that's like getting one star on Amazon. Have (laughs) you ever bought a one-star product? Yeah. Or will you ever? Never. So people are looking for this social proof. And if you've already got two or three bestsellers, and those are four or five stars, people will consider it. That puts you into the zone of consideration. It puts you in contention. It doesn't get them over the line. And you have to keep working on building those strong foundations and uh, encouraging more and more people. And this is something else in terms of building your personal brand. Your personal recommendations on LinkedIn. Do not accept Marcus is a nice chat. Delete those. Go back and have a series of questions. So the questions I always like to give people are, who are you and who do you serve? What problem originally caused you to invite me to help? What initial reservations did you have about working with me? What kind of results have you had in pounds and dollars, percentages, uh, cost reductions, improvements in speed of sales cycle, conversion rates, whatever? What surprised you? And would you recommend me and why? And have people follow that framework, but write it in their own voice. That way, you get the side of one page in terms of a testimonial, but it tells a narrative and it relates. You know, Dan Kennedy, uh, I remember reading uh, one of his books on copywriting, and he said people buy from people like themselves. Firemen buy from firemen, nurses buy from nurses. And if you have those testimonials and recommendations from people just like them, and I can point to at least 12 pieces of business I've written precisely because a testimony was written by someone just like them. Yeah. And all I had to do was not drop the ball. Well, this idea of social proof is also prevalent in in, in my book in terms of building that that sonic boom. And I, I demonstrate in this book that sometimes strong social proof can even overcome a problematic problem. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if that's a word. A problematic problem. It's a problem. But social proof is is really important because people do not buy 
items, especially a personal service or a high ticket item without, they don't make it in a vacuum. They look at reviews. They talk to their friends. They, they seek out testimonies. They're going to look at your website to see what other people think. They might even look at review sites. So social proof is, is really important today. That then raises another awkward question. Is there such a thing as cumulative disadvantage? Yes, absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. When you get to the end of my book, there's a surprise. <laughs> Chapter 10 kind of goes a weird, weird way. Because what I realized is that when you write business books like this, or this is even like starting to teeter over into almost like a self-help book, creating momentum for your ideas, that all of these books are created for elitists. Because think about it, not necessarily elitists, but people with resources. To be able to read and activate a book like mine, you have to be able to afford to buy the book. You have to have time to read the book. You have to have the resources to, to activate the book. And when I wrote this book about creating momentum, I had two audiences in mind. One is my typical business audience. And one is a family that I've worked with and mentored for 12 or 13 years in a, in a very disadvantaged area of our city. And I thought, can these people use this book? And the answer was no, because they have cumulative disadvantage. And what I mean by that is that I predict when people read this book, they'll see the world in a new way. And they'll, they'll never see the world the same because you'll start to see this pattern everywhere you go. If you meet someone and they're talking to you about their career or their business, you'll listen and you hear, okay, that's how they had their advantage. Ooh, that was the seam I see. And here's what how they built momentum. That's what came next. And you realize that all of us are riding the crest of a wave that started a long time ago. Advantage builds on advantage. As we go through those doors, go through those doors, build momentum, build momentum. But some people are riding a towering wave, like Bill Gates. <laughs> He's riding a towering, unstoppable wave. Some people are riding blue-collar waves. I come from a family of plumbers. I had to work a little harder to build my momentum. I didn't have a lot of early childhood advantages. And some people aren't riding a, a, a wave at all. They're being pulled under by the undertow, just trying to live day to day. And the idea I suggested in my book, this is something we hinted at earlier, is that we know momentum can come from creating these sparks of opportunity. And that's something all of us can do. And uh, this gap, these gaps in income and welfare and savings have continued to persist in our societies and they're just getting greater. Unfortunately, this research that I discovered in the 60s about cumulative advantage, it's true <laughs> that the gaps don't close if you, if you have these advantages and play your cards right. But the way we can all do something to help close those gaps is to help create sparks of momentum in others. And that's something that's very accessible, something very doable, because there are areas of cumulative disadvantage in the world. 
Okay, so let's finish on a slightly happier note. So, I think that is a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look at what individuals can do to share their cumulative advantage with others, what advice would you give to somebody who's kind of reached the top of the tree and they have an opportunity to give back? What advice would you give there? Well, one of the things I do is is look for opportunities to say yes, because you never know what impact that will have. And this sort of drives my wife crazy because I say yes to every high school student, every college student, if they're working on a paper and they want to interview me. And these are activities that really are I have no hope of ever getting any sort of revenue stream from these activities. And it takes quite a bit of my time, but I know that I'm in a position to create these sparks. And last week I was on, it was in a clubhouse room and this fella came to the stage. I was one of the hosts and he said, I just won. I raised my hand because I just wanted to say, thank you, Mark. You were a guest lecturer at my university many years ago. And I was ready to drop out of school. I just didn't think I belonged there. I didn't know where I fit. I was feeling disheartened. And after class, I asked you a lot of questions about marketing. And you looked at me and you said, I can see by these really deep, interesting questions you have, you are going to be a natural at this. You have a lot of potential and you're going to go far. He said, nobody ever said anything like that to me before. You gave me the hope and the vision that I could do this. And I stayed in school, got my degree. Now I have a successful job and I'm able to provide for my family where I was, I was, I really felt absolutely lost before I had that conversation with you. The point is you don't really know how helping people can send a ripple down through history. So number one, Look for opportunities to say yes. Number two, I proactively seek, you know, I look out for people who could use some help. And there's a lot of people right now who need help. I watch conversations on social media. I watch how people interact with me. If I sense that something's wrong, if something's suff- if someone's suffering in some way, I'll just send them a note and say, hey, just want to let you know, I'm here for you. You want to get on the phone and have a call. And again, it's not really a way to, to build my business per se, but you never really know how that might just change the direction for somebody. And I think all those things are going to add up over time. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much. One uh, parting question then. What are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you would urge other people to pay heed to with a particular focus on developing that cumulative advantage? Well. I went down a lot of rabbit holes for this book. The one book that really had a a, a big impact on me was the Click Moment book by Franz Johansson. And he shows in a very compelling way why a lot of success is based on random events. Sort of a companion piece to that book is a, a book by Michael Sandel called The Tyranny of Merit. (laughs) And what he shows in this book is that 
we have this thing in America called, you know, the American dream, which is basically if you work hard and you just look out for opportunities that you can be anything in America, anybody can succeed. This is reinforced through the media, through television shows, through movies, the rags to riches stories. I mean, there is a certain element of truth to that, but there's also people in our society that are have cumulative disadvantage who may not have those same opportunities. And so the tyranny of merit basically shows how dysfunctional this is, how it creates, can create even humiliation in certain parts of our society if they don't realize the American dream, they think they're worthless when that's certainly not the case. So that's a very interesting perspective that actually uh, explains a lot of the political dynamics today. Excellent. How can people get hold of you? Really simple. I'm at businessesgrow.com. You can find my podcast, Marketing Companion. You can find my blog, all my books, including Cumulative Advantage, which I was so honored to discuss with you today, and lots of other uh, fun things to help you with your business. And if you want additional resources around Cumulative Advantage, go to www.businessesgrow.com forward slash cumulative advantage. Yes. Mark Schaefer, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Always a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do get in touch with Mark. He's incredibly helpful. Now, if you are the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business year after year, and do so without the wheels coming off and achieve genuine, sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year. Let's schedule some time for a brief conversation. Now, if you are also interested in sales and selling and you want to elevate the profession, we've just launched a global community called Sales A Force For Good. And our mission is to remind us that we exist because of, not in spite of the customer, and it's our role to serve. We want to raise selling as a profession in the eyes of customers and make sales an aspirational career choice for the next generation. If you're interested in becoming a guest or in sales of force for good, or indeed in growing your business and achieving hypergrowth, you can reach me at marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.